Episode 91 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. This episode is part of our yearly Christian Humanist Radio Network crossover event. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Leah Henning, Nathan Gilmore of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and Coyle Neal of the City of Man Podcast. Because our lineup is very different today than usual, and there are four of us, we're going to just begin with a round of introductions, and we're going to start with Leah. Hello, everyone. My name is Leah Henning. I earned my master's degree in European history at Loyola University in Chicago and have since moved back to Minnesota. I am living in St. Paul. Thanks. Um, how about you, Coyle? Uh, yeah, my name is Coyle Neal. I am an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri, uh, where I live uh, with my wife, uh, Alexis Neal, that listeners of the Christian Feminist Podcast uh, should know fairly well. Thanks. Nathan? And I'm Nathan Gilmore. I'm an English professor in Georgia, and I'm on the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm Katie Grubbs, and um, I'm a Christian Feminist Podcast regular. I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas, and uh, teach online classes for HBU as well as develop online classes. So I've been building um, online English classes for them for about a year now. And I live um, here in Houston with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. And um, so that's kind of just who we are, listeners. And before we move on to talk about the film tonight, um, I want to just do a little bit about why we do this crossover thing at all, because this is a yearly thing. So I'm actually going to ask Nathan to just give us a little bit of information about the crossover event. What? Way off year? No, that's not it. Uh, (laughs) So back in 2015 or so, uh, Victoria Reynolds Farmer of the Christian Feminist Podcast and Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist Podcast were watching Firefly, and Victoria wrote something about it on some social media platform, and mainly as a joke, uh, which is often how these things start, I said, Victoria, we totally need to do a massive crossover event where we talk about Firefly, because that's a great series, and uh, next thing I know, uh, there is a spreadsheet that has landed in my inbox and we have divvied up aspects of Firefly to talk about for the first uh, Christian Humanist Radio Network crossover. Uh, I was the skipper for the Christian Humanist podcast that first go around uh, and each of the other shows on the network did a show. We released it in December. I remember that because our episode ran so long that I was almost late for my department Christmas party. Uh, after that, we decided to uh, move the crossover event to be a Halloween event. Uh, so in 2016, around Halloween time, we did a series of episodes uh, on the Twilight Zone. In 2017, we did a series of episodes on the uh, Universal Monster movies. 
And this year we're doing a series of episodes on Alfred Hitchcock films. So here we are on the Christian Feminist Podcast, and that's what we're doing. So Katie, does that hit about all the high points? That's perfect. And uh, listeners, you can check out all the other different um, podcast episodes because it's a big mix-up. You'll probably, you'll almost certainly hear uh, some people from our CFP docket who are going to be on some other shows, and there's going to be um, covering lots of other films. I think one of the one of the podcasts is talking about Psycho. I know Christian Humanist is talking about the Thirty Nine Steps. Um, so there's a lot of different things. So if you're a Hitchcock fan, you have a, really have a chance to hear about uh, conversations about a lot of different movies from different periods of his career. Um, and I just wanted to also give a, a quick explanation on why I chose this film uh, for our CFP portion of the crossover. Um, since I'm moderating the episode, that was my choice. And the reason I, I chose The Lady Vanishes is because uh, two reasons. One, it's, it's, a very, it's a pretty early film of his. And um, I liked the idea of doing one of the early movies because at that point I didn't know what anyone else was going to pick. I didn't know that you know somebody was going to do 39 steps or, or anything like that. And so I... Um, I, I wanted to pick something early just in case everyone else went for later films. But mainly the reason I picked this movie is because it's tons of fun. Um, it's uh, it's lighter than um, the Hitchcock movie that I have the most vivid memories of, which is The Birds. And that's mainly because my grandma had that movie when I was a kid and, and would let us watch it. Um, and so I remember watching The Birds being like eight, ten years old and just being terrified. Um, this movie's not like that. <laughs> um, it's a lot more lighthearted at many points. And it's a great mystery and contains one of my favorite tropes, which is the little old lady who is more than she seems. So those are kind of the reasons I went for The Lady Vanishes. And uh, to start off with, before we talk about the plot, Leah's going to give us a little bit of brief background of the history of this movie just to give some scaffolding for um for this film and where it came from before we move into the actual story so um can you please get started with that leah absolutely so the lady vanishes was released in 1938 it was actually the last of alfred hitchcock's british films before he relocated to hollywood his next british film wouldn't be until he did Frenzy in 1972, I believe. And by that point, he was, his career was kind of winding down, even though some people do say that Frenzy is the best film of his career. Um, from the time that The Lady Vanishes opened in theaters, it was a big hit. It became one of the biggest British film hits of all time. Um, it is based on very loosely on the novel The Wheel Spins by Ethel Lena White, who in her own day in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, she was a, as popular a mystery writer as Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers. Um, this film really boosted Hitchcock's directorial credibility from the previous four films he had directed, which had been very poorly received, and it did solidify his reception in Hollywood um, as American reviewers really joined in the praise of the film. Um, Hitchcock wasn't the only one to benefit from this. Uh, the Lady Vanishes was Margaret Lockwood's big break on the silver screen, and the film while taking quite a bit of freedom with the plot of the original novel, did bring more attention to Ethel Lena White's works, and uh, more of her novels were turned into films in subsequent years. More recently, 
The Lady Vanishes has been ranked in the top 30 of all-time best British films, and it has had a film adaptation released in 1970s and a TV series in 2013, neither of which, though, have risen to the original's great reception. Thanks. That's perfect. That gives us a great, uh, a kind of great place to, to jump off from. And I kind of wanted to, to get everyone's kind of personal take on this. We like to do that um, sometimes at the CFP before we get into the story. So we're gonna, just going to kind of go around and um, each person let, uh, let our listeners know when was the first time you saw this film? Um, you know, was it in prepping for this episode or did you see it at some point in the past? And uh, what did you think about it initially when you when you first saw it? Um, so we're going to let Coyle get started off with that. Uh, yeah, the uh, the first time I saw it, I think, was a, a year ago, maybe, maybe two years ago. I don't remember now. Um, I had seen some Hitchcock in the past and been, oh, I, not underwhelmed. That's not fair. Uh, I've, I've liked about half of the Hitchcock movies I've seen. Maybe that's that's the way to put it. Uh, so the uh, the wife wanted me to, to, to see this, and so we, we sat down and watched it, and I thought it was really good. Uh, then we watched the uh, one of the remakes, the the one with uh, Sybil Shepherd and Angela Lansbury, and it was not so good. Uh, and then I watched it again uh, last week for this. Uh, Nathan, how about you? Uh, Saturday is the first time I saw it, so awesome. <laughs> I am coming to this as a, as an utter novice. Uh, I enjoyed it, you know. I uh, uh, I've, I've I've not been a uh, big you know fan of of murder mysteries over the years but i enjoyed you know this one that turned out not to be so much a murder mystery sorry spoiler alert (laughs) yeah that's okay yeah really more of a spy movie um leah how about you i actually saw this at some point growing up i must have been in elementary school um my parents especially my father were actually huge alfred hitchcock fans so they started me pretty early watching his films. I actually remember watching The Birds as well in probably second or third grade and just being terrified it's freaky, of right? The Birds. Oh my gosh, it's so horrible. I still have a hard time watching that film again. Um, but I have grown to love the rest of his works on my own, thankfully. So I'm not completely avoiding him because of The Birds. Um, I first saw this movie maybe three or four years ago. I can't even remember. It might be as many as, as, as eight or ten years ago because I had not seen much Hitchcock at all except for the aforementioned The Birds incident when I was a kid, which, by the way, I can still see in my my mind's eye if I shut my eyes, the old man with the eyes that have been plucked out by the birds. I never forgot that image. Um, but when David and I first got married, um, he had wanted to show me um a couple of these earlier hitchcock movies and i had never seen them and i know we watched the 39 steps back at that time and so probably it was around the same time maybe eight or ten years ago now that i think about it that i first saw this movie the lady vanishes but hadn't really watched it since then so until i watched it a few days ago to prep um to prep for this episode i'd forgotten just how much i did like it and it was a joy to watch it again and with a more careful eye this time, um, really trying to notice lots of nuance and uh, things like that. And one other thing, too, that I wanted to throw in um, 
that goes along with the, the background that Leah was giving that I did not realize until I was researching for this episode is that in the movie, listeners, if you haven't seen it, there's a kind of comic pair of English guys who are trying desperately to get back home to watch the cricket match. And those two, and they get a lot of funny lines and bits and things like that. But um, those two characters were so popular, um, Charters and Caldecott, that they put those that those same characters appeared in like three other movies as the the same characters, the same guys. Um, at least one of those other movies was also on a train. Um, I, the characters just proved super popular, and so they just kept putting them in movies. And the other, and I think the other movie they were in that was also on a train um, also had Margaret Lockwood, Lockwood in it. So um, that was another kind of bit of the film history that I never knew before, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, well, we're going we're gonna to plunge straight on into talking about the movie. But before we do, Coyle's just going to give us a very brief plot summary, just in case any listeners haven't seen the film, just so that you understand what the heck we're talking about. So, Coyle, why don't you do that? Yeah, so spoiler alert, right? Um, Obviously. So, uh, yeah, uh, Iris, uh, Iris Henderson is traveling by train from a hotel somewhere in Central Europe. Uh, we're, we're told the place is uh, is Bandrica, uh, which is you know obviously just a made-up place, uh, back to England. Uh, as she's getting on the train, she gets hit on the head while helping uh, Miss Froy, uh, a little old lady who's also traveling on the train. Uh, she falls asleep, and when she wakes up, Miss Froy has vanished, uh, hence the title. The bulk of the movie is her looking for Miss Froy with the help of Gilbert, uh, a, uh, a musician slash historian uh, who at first is helping her out mostly because she's attractive. Uh, everyone who'd seen Miss Froy on the train either lies or uh, lies blatantly or dodges the question. Uh, you know, they, they say that Iris is you know suffering from a con- con- concussion and hallucinating. Uh, they even have a famous brain surgeon on the train uh, who diagnoses her with that, uh, or uh, or she's just a hysterical girl who's going to keep causing problems and you know make them miss their cricket match or, or ruin their political careers and and so on. Uh, and to be fair, she she does keep fainting and passing out, so there there's some evidence for that. Uh, through a, a series of event, uh, uh, through a series of events, uh, including a teabag blowing from the garbage against a train window, uh, and a knife fight with a magician, Gilbert comes to believe her, uh, and they uncover that there is in fact a conspiracy. It turns out that Miss Freud is a British secret agent, and that the SS has kidnapped her and is planning to murder her in this this very very elaborate way. Uh, Gilbert and Iris rescue Miss Freud, uh, but the Germans divert the train. Uh, so they have to uh, shoot their way out. Um, I know I've left a lot out, but uh, you, you said be brief in a few sentences. So hopefully I hit all of the high points there. That was perfect. I think that's all we uh, we need to know to, to move forward. Um, and so we're going to kind of we're going to walk through some questions, listeners, but we're also just going to have kind of a free discussion. So um, and talk about some different issues because this is a Christian feminist podcast. I did want to pose the first question I wanted to pose um, is a question about the, the women characters, because it's a movie that kind of has an ensemble cast and several uh, female characters actually play very big roles in, uh, in the story. Um, obviously the, the titular lady who vanishes is Miss Freud, but there's also Iris Henderson, the young woman that, um, Coyle mentioned. Also there is, um, there's a mistress of a politician who's also on the train and, um, she gets some very interesting scenes. There's a fake nun, a, a woman dressed as a nun who is not an actual nun, who is kind of a key plot element in a couple of different points. So the first question I wanted to ask you guys and whoever has thoughts about this can just jump in first. Um, is what female stereotypes did, do you feel like the story was presenting and does the story kind of validate those or complicate any stereotypes that you might have seen in the story? I mean, 
Coyle already touched on one, which was Iris as the fainting damsel in distress. She does faint quite a bit, um, sometimes from overexcitement, sometimes because she has been concussed, and we don't know how sleepy that is making her. Um, however, that's not all she is. So there is a part of a stereotype with her. However, she also joins in this knife fight with the magician. She's biting and kicking sometimes the wrong person. Um, and she is the driving force behind the plot. Her persistence and in some ways, uh, quote unquote, unladylike behavior is kind of breaking that stereotype and showing herself as a woman to be reckoned with. Not just a damsel in distress, but a damsel who also is pretty handy in a fight. And what's important about that is that nobody really comes to her rescue to validate the fact that she, uh, you know, that she actually, you know, saw Miss Furway, right? Uh, I mean, she actually breaks the case, so to speak, uh, by spotting the visual clue that actually gets the first person to, you know, acknowledge out loud that they've actually seen her. So, uh, in, in some important respects, uh, she comes to her own rescue in this story, uh, which makes her, you know, somewhat different, I think from, uh, Todd Hunter's mistress, uh, who Katie mentioned earlier, uh, who has some great lines, but I mean, as far as I remember, and I, and I'll grant that by the end I was, I was keeping busy trying to figure out, uh, just basic plot details. Uh, but I don't remember her really emerging out of that the way that Iris Henderson does. Does anyone else remember any kind of turn for Todd Hunter's mistress? I mean, she she does sort of stand up at the very end, right when they're when they're pinned in by the Germans. Uh, she's the one who's who's encouraging uh, the the guy to go to fight, right? Uh, or or at least not to be such a uh, such a pansy about it. Yeah, um, I, you know, I have to say, I was, I couldn't remember because it'd been so long. I was really hoping he was gonna die. So when he did, I was really excited, um, because she, yeah, he's he's kind of a weaselly guy, and he, and and you know, which, and I also remembered what I don't remember thinking this the first time I watched the movie, but he's supposed to have been in Europe for six weeks with his mistress, and I'm thinking, how did he swing that? Because he, you know, he doesn't want anyone to see them together, so he w- presumably wants to stay married. Um, her character's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, she doesn't seem to be completely under his thumb um, because he says they should lie and say they didn't see Miss Freud because he does, just doesn't want any notoriety. He doesn't want anyone to notice them together. And if they say, yes, we did see that old lady, now they're drawn into the case, right? Um, well, it becomes clear to her in a conversation with him that she's not going to, they're not going to get to be together. He's going back to his wife. You know, he's, he's, she says, she'll never divorce me. So sorry. And so in a bid to force him to have to divorce his wife or whatever, to, in a bid to force him to be with her, she goes to Iris and tells her the truth. Yes, I did see that old lady. And she's the first person besides Gilbert to believe Iris or to say anything about having actually seen this old woman. So that moment is actually very important, I think, because that moment, somebody else, not Iris, said, I did see this old lady. And I think that changes things for Gilbert a little bit. Now, then later, she changes her story again, right? She she kind of backs off of it. She turns weak again. But um, at a couple of different moments, she seems to exert her own will, though 
mainly to try to to desperately grasp onto this relationship that is becoming clear to her as slipping away because of his political ambitions. And I thought that was really interesting. Miss Froy is also interesting because she, I mentioned earlier, liking the kind of old lady who's has unexpected depths kind of trope. Um, but this, and, I'll, and and this was another question that I, I asked you guys to think about, but uh, Miss Froy seems to me very Miss Marple-esque for anyone who's ever read the Miss Marple stories by Agatha Christie, um, which, by the way, by the time this movie came out, Miss um, Marple stories had been around for years. I'm not saying that, that that was any influence on the story, but that type in a mystery had been around for a while. Agatha Christie, I think she started writing, first Miss Marple story was published in like 1927, I think, and this movie came out in 38. And uh, Miss Marple is, like Miss Froy, a seemingly harmless, seemingly frail old lady who has hidden depths of intelligence and courage. And particularly at the end of the film, when they're in this shootout, it doesn't seem like they're going to get away. Miss Froy kind of says, okay, I'm going to go now. I'll see you guys later. And, you know, because I have to get this information through. And the code is in a song, which she also teaches to Gilbert. So there's two kind of copies, as it were. But she basically jumps off the back of the train and runs through the woods under, you know, under gunfire. And we know at the end of the film, she did make it back to England, which is kind of remarkable and unlikely, admittedly unlikely. But she's also kind of busting stereotypes a little bit. Um, what, uh... Anything else on, on that particular idea of female characters, or do we want to move on to uh, another question? I, uh, I don't know enough about the, the movies of the time, but there's, there's also the Countess, uh, uh, who, if I, if I remember it, she, she is like, she's obviously some kind of you know, continental aristocracy, but she's also like the minister of propaganda for Germany or something. Like she has some official title. Is that, is that a common, common trope that you would have uh, in movies in the thirties. I'm, I'm not familiar enough with them to, to be able to answer that. You wouldn't necessarily have a woman having those titles. Usually there's a background male character or if the woman, uh, namely like a duchess or a countess is mentioned to have one of those titles, she's very much eye candy, um, which is not the case in this movie. So that, that is another, good trope that's kind of spun on its head i feel like they maybe said that she was married to the minister for propaganda i think she might be the wife but that's also interesting because why not just put him on the train why make it a female character i think that's also slightly unexpected um i like her as a character too because she's she's kind of terrifying and she mostly just sits there and looks sternly at people and, and occasionally she'll give an order, but she, um, anytime kind of Iris is, is seated in her compartment on the train, and anytime Iris kind of looks at her, the looks she, the looks that she directs at Iris to me are very frightening. Um, I, I feel like this movie is a great example of the way that Hitchcock can make something seemingly innocuous be very frightening. If you're well, thinking she, for the, yeah, go ahead. She's she's obviously the the anti Miss Freud, right? They're they're both some kind of agents of of government entities, and they're both older women who are doing things that older women don't often do. Uh, just one of them is good. And, and one of them is, is clearly sinister. That's a great point. Um, and something that hadn't occurred to me, which, and since we're kind of dancing around it anyway, we talked about minister for propaganda and all that, but I wanted to ask you guys, particularly you coil, cause it's your area, but also everybody else. What did you feel like this movie was having to say about the politics of the time? Uh, I mean, it's, it's clearly a, uh, as a pre-World War II movie, but just barely, 
they're they're lining up a, a British versus the Germans thing, right? The the Germans are up to evil stuff. Uh, they're uh, which which uh, you know they're killing people who spy on them, but it's it's not like they're catching them and putting them on trial and executing them. Right. They're they're taking little old ladies and pretending that they're brain surgery patients and having world famous brain surgeons kill them on the operating table. Uh, so it's it's the, the Germans are the sinister bad guys. Uh, the British are deeply, deeply reluctant to get involved, uh, especially if uh, uh, Caldecott and, uh, and and charters are typical of all supposed to be typical of you know all British people. Uh, they only come in when they're basically forced to. Uh, so I, I think there's kind of a lot of that sort of political commentary going on, although it's also I don't know that it's necessarily central. You know, the, the big point is, is this this question of whether or not Iris is reliable. And also Caldecott versus the Germans has a lovely uh, Han Solo versus the Stormtroopers feel to it. Right. The, the, the dude can't miss. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, that there's this kind of self-deprecating moment. And I can't remember which is which of Charters and Caldecott, but um the, the smaller one, the guy without the scar on his face, um, he says something about not, you know, oh, I hope I, I hope I can actually hit someone. And his friend says, he's just being modest. He's a great shot. I thought that was interesting, too. Um, he, he's kind of deflecting a little bit. The best or one of the things I noticed, politically speaking, is at the very, very beginning of the movie, um, Miss Froy, before she disappears in the hotel, is having a conversation with Charters and Caldecott. And they're talking about um, the country they're in, right? This fake country, Vendrika, and the people. And she says, oh, the people are so lovely. They're just like children. They sing all the time. And the, the English guys say something like, well, yeah, but they're also, you know, about to go to war. So is that really true? And she says, well, I always think you shouldn't um, judge a country's politics by the nature of its people, because after all, we English are very honest by nature, aren't we? And then she just kind of leaves. It's this kind of savage burn. Um, and she just delivers it in a very innocuous voice. You know, this this suggestion that, well, the English are naturally honest, but, you know, politics is not the same as the people. And I thought that was really interesting, particularly given that this was, again, like we said before, a movie that he was making in England um, as kind of last English movie. Did anybody else notice that line or is that just me? No, I noticed it too. There were a few tongue-in-cheek moments where there was there was just some slight hand commentary on British politics. One of my favorites was uh, I think it was Gilbert talking to the doctor, um, saying, "Oh, I heard that you were uh, over in England operating on our one of our cabinet ministers. Tell me, did you find anything?" Yeah, I remember that line. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah. right. And and it's a laughable moment, but at the same time, it is that kind of dig to the British people, like oh, your your pe- your leaders aren't necessarily leading you well. Um, I kind of want to shift focus just a little bit and um talk for just a few minutes about the film visually, um because I think you know we tend to get caught up at least those of us like me who are English professors tend to get caught up in story so I want to make sure that we mention some other things about the film did you guys have any particular kind of camera shots or scenes or moments that you thought were particularly interesting or successful um personally I didn't find this movie as visually inspiring as some of 
Alfred Hitchcock's other movies. Um, there are some wonderful classic train shots, like looking down the corridor where you can just barely see a little bit of each um, each room. Uh, and there's a wonderful shot where they're looking down the outside of the train as Gilbert is climbing across as only people in movies can do from one carriage into the next. And as far as those classic shots go, they were great, but it's not as iconic as say a rear window or vertigo or some of his later, more popular, um, maybe not more popular, but, uh, more widely known works were um this this wasn't one of alfred hitchcock's uh chosen stories and i think it kind of shows in the film uh this is one that he just kind of was given to fulfill a contract with the studio and so i i don't see as much of his own take in the cinematography as there is in some of his other works. I think, um, I, oh, go, you go ahead. Oh, no, 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 go, go for it. I was just going to say, I, I think that you're, I think you're right. There weren't as many very evocative shots as you might see in some of the other films. The few that I did really like were ones that were, um, kind of facial close-ups done from interesting angles. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of there's a moment and I think it's in the final kind of standoff scene in the train carriage when they're having a shootout. But um, the the fake nun is contemplating like the, there's a, a soldier who's come in and is kind of menacing them and she's standing behind him and she's kind of trying to show with her face everybody else in the room can see her but this soldier can't see her she's kind of showing what she's about to do like she's going to grab him from behind or something but the shot is is um, is done kind of from low into the side almost like what might be the point of view of one of these other people who's kind of crouching down on the floor and I thought that was interesting and that happens sometimes too in the carriage when um frequently you would see everyone else in um Iris's compartment from her point of view right so it's kind of shifting like she's looking around at each person in turn and I liked that because it was very immersive it made me feel like I was there or like I was her which I thought was interesting what were you gonna say Coyle yeah I I wouldn't want to uh to to stand on this for sure I'd I'd want to go back and watch it again uh but I I have sort of the vague memory that as she is uh looking for Miss Froy like the 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 more and more unlikely it seems that anyone is going to believe her it seems like she's in smaller and smaller rooms so they start in the dining car and then they're in the whatever the storage room is at the end and then finally she is locked in the in the room with Gilbert and they've been drugged or at least they uh, the the villain thinks that they've been drugged uh, and then once the the reveal has happened and once they've rescued Freud they're they're back in the big open room uh, the the scene sort of opens back up again I I'm, I might just be kind of falsely attributing that uh, my my own memory might be suspect here uh, but that, I, I seem to have some kind of idea of things getting smaller and smaller, which is impressive on a train because things are pretty small to start with. It's not like dining cars are huge. That makes sense. I could, I could definitely see that. And he, you know, he does interesting things with sound too, to kind of show you Iris's state of mind. I noticed that at the, especially toward, closer to the beginning, um, 
before she up before she convinces Gilbert that she's telling the truth when nobody believes her um there are these moments when she's feeling very overwhelmed because no one believes her and she feels very isolated and whenever that happens the train wheel sound gets louder and louder and louder like the it like it, it gets louder and louder and almost faster and faster um that was another thing that i thought was interesting is every time that they would cut away and show the train wheels moving it felt to me like the train wheels seemed like they were moving way too fast like they'd been sped up or something and that and i, I don't know how fast train wheels go or went in 1938 so i could be wrong um but there was this frenetic feeling um because he would be cutting between the train wheels going really fast and this really loud train noise just drowning out everything else as iris is just feeling increasingly unglued because no one believes her and i think that's around the same time that she's kind of looking around the compartment and she sees miss Freud's face superimposed over every person she looks at i don't know if you guys remember that scene and and so and that's the one point right after that she kind of freaks out and that's the one point really um because leah's right she's very firm of purpose um but that's the one point she kind of wavers for a second and says maybe you're right maybe that maybe it's just a hallucination and then but within 10 minutes you know sees um where miss Freud wrote her name on the window right like in the dust and and she realizes no i was right she is real and i thought that was really interesting too anything else about um the film craft the way the film was made you know i will agree about the sound um Alfred Hitchcock's use of sound in this film was fantastic because you'll also notice that the music was limited. He, he's never a director to use music unless it's directly moving the story along. And that held true particularly with this film because there's such an important piece with the music carrying this hidden message about uh, multiple governments in Europe and uh, there's really only two or three songs that are played throughout the whole course of the film, and it's the background noise that's moving the moving the whole film along. We mentioned um, Quayle mentioned the tightness of the the space of the train, and we talked about the train sounds. So um, this movie came out about four years after Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, the novel, um, not any of the films. And there were, you know, kind of other train mystery films at the time, um, notably uh, after this one, one that also had these characters, Charters and Caldecott. So what do you what do you all think about what is it about train mysteries that make them so fascinating or so menacing? Uh, it's a sense of confinement compared uh, combined with a sense of inevitability. The train is going where it's going to go uh, and you can certainly stop it. Uh, but to do so, I mean, is to impose upon, you know, everyone else on the vehicle. So uh, there's a sense in which, you know, the how to put this, you have to be very sure before you actually stop the train. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's a combination of factors there that I think makes a, a train mystery especially compelling. I It's interesting to me, too, the kind of. You talked about the inevitability, Nathan, right? The train will get where it's going to go. And with that, you also have this um, urgency, right? So that in most murder mysteries, you, there's, you know, there might be a race to catch a killer before that killer kills again. 
but in terms of you know people might range from location to location drive around look at different places but with the train mystery you're kind of trapped in the train unless you stop it like you said and you only have so much time to solve it because you know if they can't prove that any wrong has been done then when they get to the final stop these people are just going to disappear um you know the people who did the crime are just going to melt away and so there's this super limited amount of time which makes the stakes for everything just go that much higher and that that's true even in um, a murder mystery that's not to do with um politics the way that this one is murder on the Orient express is a great example um you know there's a, a limited aspect um and i suppose that would be true right in any mystery that takes place on any mode of transportation i mean i suppose the same might be true for a boat mystery um or a plane mystery <laughs> um though the one agatha christie novel i can think of that uh the murder takes place on a plane is not actually solved while still on the plane um it's solved later on uh, on the ground um, any other ideas um, or anything else about the train thing before we move on to another bit? Well, and then also at the end of this movie, you combine the train mystery with, you know, the, the frequent trope in action movies and spy movies where diverting the train from its intended destination, uh, you know, puts all of the characters in, you know, just a very, very heightened, dangerous situation because uh, all of a sudden you know, the bad guys are waiting for you at the end of that track. Absolutely. And then you have a situation where, you know, you have, they're able to get the train going again. And now you have amateurs who are having to try to run the train, which does not look easy um, because the two guys who run the train conveniently, they both get shot in the shootout, but um, our heroes do not. And so they have to figure out how to, Gilbert has to figure out how to run this train, which is also interesting. Um, so, uh, one of the one of the big questions I wanted to make sure that I asked, because the film does pay lots of attention to this, is how did you guys like the central pair, the kind of I guess the the Gilbert Iris pairing romance whatever, and the way they inter interact. How did you feel about that relationship? I really wish that they had just stayed friends at the end. <laughs> um, I liked them. I liked their camaraderie and their banter. Um, I, I I wish that they would have stayed, just stayed friends. You, it's one of those kind of tropes where you can see it coming from a mile away. Like, oh, they've, they've spent several hours on a train together through a very stressful situation. They must end up together and end happily ever after, um, which they do. Uh the last conversation that we see them having together, they're discussing honeymoon destinations. Um, I, I love them as friends. I, I wish they weren't a romantic coupling. That is a, I really like that. I, that hadn't occurred to me. And it's interesting too, listeners, if you haven't seen the movie at the beginning of the film, Iris is engaged to somebody else. She's supposed to be going back home to get married. And she's kind of been on like a hiking, I guess, tour with two female friends. And I remember thinking at the time, if you guys are such good friends, how come you're not going to her wedding? Because she's supposed to be getting married on Thursday and they kind of say goodbye to her and they're going to stay in Europe, I guess, and keep trekking or whatever. But at the beginning of the film, Iris was fairly annoying to me because she has this kind of, oh, I've done lots of cool things. I guess now I have to settle down and get married. And it's this very kind of as if it's inevitable 
And and when she says, I've seen every everything and, and I've been everywhere and done everything, but then lists the things that she's done, the list is very lame. She's kind of had caviar at con and, and she's played Baccarat and Biarritz and it's all this kind of, you know, I, I remember thinking that list doesn't say much about doing everything or about marriage. If these are all the things you've done, so now you feel okay to get married. Um, but this is a, it's an interesting relationship to me because it plays on a couple of different tropes. One, she and Gilbert seem to hate each other, or at least they, they, it was a very antagonistic relationship in the beginning, which is a trope, right? It's, you know, goes all the way back to much ado about nothing and now shows up so often in any romantic comedy. If you see two people who hate each other, oh, of course they're going to get together, right? Um, it's that. But another Shakespeare thing that I was thinking of when I saw this movie is that their first scene together felt very much like the Taming of the Shrew to me. Um, kind of like Petruchio and Kate in Taming the Shrew because she, she, in her rich girl way, complains to the manager and, and gives him a bunch of money to make Gilbert be quiet and or leave his room because, and admittedly, what he's doing is really annoying, but he's above her in the hotel and he has these people folk dancing upstairs while he plays his clarinet because he's trying to record the movements of this folk dance because it's like a dying art or something. But so when he gets kicked out of his room upstairs, he just comes downstairs to her room, barges in and just sets up camp in her room. And this just ridiculous flamboyant fashion, like, well, you kicked me out of my room, so I'm just going to sleep in here. And he says, if you tell me to leave, I'll tell everyone you invited me here. And it's just this outrageous behavior, and she kind of huffs and puffs at him, but then, you know, relents and, you know, kind of calls the manager back so that he'll leave. But that whole thing just felt so taming of the shrew to me. His, you know, kind of, I'm going to behave in a bombastic, ridiculous manner. And that kind of takes the wind out of her sails. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. But you're, I think you're right, Leah, that they, they seem to be very good as a friendship. Um and when it kind of, and even when it kind of turns romantic and they have a big kiss at the end, he's kind of teasing her. In the moment, he's kind of teasing her, and she's kind of saying, you're so mean. But then, of course, they kiss. I don't know. What did, what did you guys think, Nathan and, and Coyle, about the relationship? Well, first of all, the central pair in this movie is clearly uh, Charters and Caldecott, so I contest <laughs> the premise of the question. Right. <laughs> but I, I, I can't uh, argue with that. If, if we must talk about, you know, Iris and Gilbert. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I mean, you know, uh, if you've seen very many movies at all, you hear that Gilbert gets every punchline in every scene. So of course he's going to end up with the, the woman lead. Uh, so yeah, I mean that, that came as no surprise at all. Uh, I, I agree with Leah that, I mean, it was, it was, a uh, it was a disappointment. I mean, I thought that, you know, they really should have written the ending in a different way. Uh, but it also just didn't, you know, surprise me at all. Uh, I will say that, you know, his resourcefulness at the end, you know, it, it just so happens that he used to drive a, a miniature engine on the old whatever line, uh, which, you know, wow, that's some lazy writing. Uh, but, you know, it kind of stands in contrast to definite moments in the film where, you know, the women in the film have to make up for his incompetence. So at the very least, I think that's an interesting dynamic. Quail, how about you? I, I don't really have any thoughts on that particular part of the movie. Although I will agree with Nathan that uh, Charters and Caldecott are pretty awesome. Well, let's talk about Charters and Caldecott. Uh, what were? Did you have any favorite favorite scenes with them or favorite bits that you wanted to tell our listeners about? Oh, so many. I mean, you know, the... 
they they get stuck in the room together in the bed together and you know the the maid who actually lives there keeps coming in in various states of undress and you know just making both of them even more uncomfortable than they seem to be lying in bed together uh so i mean just you know they they are you know the the Bert and Ernie of this movie they're they're there for some good slapstick you know visual gags uh i mean coils or anything you know any anything deeper than that that you'd want to point to well yeah for for all of their you know kind of obvious shallowness throughout the movie they they also do come through in the end in in the way that many other people do not right they they sort of catch yeah i mean they, they they sort of catch up to where iris has been all along Right. Uh, and, and then after after the, the difficulties over they're they're right back to their cricket match. And I, I think there's there's something sort of appealing about that. And they have one last Burton Ernie moment at the end when the cricket match is canceled for flooding and they right. actually didn't have to be in a hurry at all anyway. Right. Uh, I will say the uh, the, the remake with uh, Angela Lansbury and Elliot Gould and Sybil Shepherd, the is is largely not worth watching, but the, the two guys who fill that role do an fantastic job it it's worth watching for them so if you can you know find some way to fast forward to them and then ignore the rest of it it, it is worth your time do you guys think that those two characters are meant to be the embodiment of what it is to be english and are just another way to kind of poke fun oh i think miss Froy is the embodiment of what it means to be english but yeah i mean i, I think they're comic relief and you know coil's absolutely right i mean you know because they are the English characters in an English movie, they prove to be, you know, really quite useful at the end. But uh, then, like I said, I mean, they get one last gag to end the movie with. My favorite bit with them is when there's a shot where um, they're upstairs in their tiny room in the maid's room. And you hear their voices, but all you see is someone holding up a newspaper, right? But then when the door opens, they put the newspaper down, and they're both behind the newspaper. <laughs> Nathan's right. That's when they're like they're like wedged in next to each other. And I don't know if they were supposed to only have had like one pair of pajamas, but like one of them's wearing only a shirt, and the other one's like wearing only pants or something. Just that visual stuff is is so funny. Um, and I think that there's also they're also good because um, there's some contrast drawn between them um and gilbert which and we haven't said much about this there's i feel like there's a slight class thing happening in some parts of this movie among other things at the very beginning we know that iris is very wealthy and we know that she's getting married to lord somebody i'm not going to pretend i can remember his name because he doesn't you know he doesn't appear till the very end but she says to her friends her female friends that her dad wants a shield or a coat of arms to put on the jam label right she kind of throws that out so there's this, you know, kind of statement that, you know, her dad's a very successful, I guess, very wealthy kind of merchant and is really wanting her to marry into the upper class, which is interesting. Um, you know, then you've got Gilbert, who um, is, you know, the son of, of, you know, a musician, and he doesn't seem to be of any particularly um, upper crustiness. All that to say, in the shootout scene, um, or one, some, sometime later in a tense scene, there's some reference to um, somebody says, oh, uh, oh, it's the soldier. The soldier who comes in on the train car to try to apprehend them says to Charters and Caldecott, they're like, oh, your English is great. And he says, yeah, I went to Oxford. And then uh, Gilbert bashes him over the head with a chair, completely knocks him out. And he says, I went to Cambridge. 
Like, and so there's this kind of like, you know, joke on Oxford versus Cambridge, but I thought that was kind of a funny moment of, you know, you've got Charters and Caldecott over here, Oxford men, and then you've got Gilbert, who we know probably didn't come from money and did, did have a, you know, a good university education, but is, you know, in that moment kind of savagely hits a guy over the head with a chair. I just, it was interesting to me that those kind of thrown in things that might even probably mean a lot more to an English viewer at the time than they would to us. But I was, you know, kind of picking up on that stuff this time around. Um, well, we have gone on for a good while. So before we move on to passing on, I do want to at, go around. Well, we're going to go around the horn one more time. And I want to ask each person, what's your favorite line in the movie? So, I'll go first. Uh, okay, go. When uh, Todd Hunter and his mistress are talking when we first meet them, uh, you know, he gets the two single rooms. And, you know, she says, we weren't nearly this careful in Paris. And his reply is, well, in Paris, the exhibition was was at its height. And she replies, well, there's no need to rub that in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved it. What about the rest of you guys? Um, one of my favorite parts is where Gilbert and uh, Iris are searching the train for clues. And they look into the compartment with the nun and the patient. And Gilbert looks in and there's nothing wrong. And he closes the door and is about to move on. And that's when Iris just questions him. Did, did you notice the nun? Anything strange about the nun in there with the patient? No, not really. And she just goes, nuns don't wear high heels. And it's just one of those brilliant moments where it's a thing that probably no man would notice because who is going to look at a woman's shoes except another woman? I love that. That made me think of uh, Glassbell's trifles again, right? Women's knowledge saving the day or, 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 or seeing to the heart of the problem. You know, we talked about that in our legally bond episode too. Um, yeah. I love that part. What about you, Coyle? Yeah. I, uh, my, my favorite line is, is, much less meaningful than any of that. Uh, it's, uh, it's again, uh, uh, Caldecott and Charters are, are talking about why they're, they missed the original train. I, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but uh, one of them is like, oh, it's, it's terrible. We missed the train. And then the other one says, well, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't have missed the train if you hadn't insisted on standing up for their national anthem. And the other guy's like, well, I, I think you should throw show respect, but I didn't know it was going to last for 20 minutes. And the other guy's like, I, I, I don't think Hungarian Rhapsody is actually their national anthem. I thought that that whole scene was was great. <laughs> they had so much good banter. Um, I had I had two favorite lines. Um, one of my first favorite lines is there Gilbert and um, Gilbert and I are searching the train. I think this is fairly early on in their search, but um, something's held them up, or she says wait, or something, and he says faint heart never found old lady which is one of my favorite lines in the movie. Um, and then uh, also later on, they have, um, they're searching the baggage car, I guess, to try to find Miss Froy. And I don't remember if this was before or after the fight with the magician, but I think it was before. But um, they're trying to marshal the facts, list them together and figure out what happened. And he finds in the prop spot for this box for this magician, a Sherlock Holmes looking hat like Deerstalker Hyde puts it on and she hands him a pipe and he's kind of playing Sherlock Holmes. And so he lays out what they know so far. And he says, so what do you think happened? And she says, I don't know. I'm only Watson. And he says, well, don't bury yourself in the part. Like, come on, tell me what you think. And I just thought that was really funny. Um, they also remind me, by the way, Iris and uh, Gilbert also remind me of 
yet another set of Agatha Christie characters because they also remind me of Tommy and Tuppence Beresford um, who were in three or four Agatha Christie novels but I think the first one is called Partners in Crime and they are a pair that kind of come together because of a mystery and that one is meant to be I believe just after World War II um, so we're going to go back. So Coyle said he had one more question. So we're going to do one final question and, uh, hit us up, Coyle. I, I got sort of a, uh, I guess, uh, kind of a hashtag me too feel from this movie. And I, I was just kind of wondering if y'all thought there was anything to that. Like, uh, this, this woman says that this terrible thing has happened, uh, and nobody believes her and it's, you know, deeply isolating and terrifying. And that seems to have been you know true in 1938 and, is obviously still something that's that's relevant and and under discussion and consideration today. Uh, like I said, I don't, I don't know if that's a discussion that's that's worth pursuing, but if so, I I at least wanted to bring it up. And if not, that's that's fine too. That's actually a great question. Um, which and 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 by the way, we should have said right from the beginning, this movie is an example of what we would now call gaslighting, right? So people keep trying to tell her she's just crazy or she's just mistaken or she's just concussed. Um, but I, I, I don't think that's a stretch at all, Coyle. And in part, like you said, because nobody believes her. But to me, another thing about this film that does feel kind of like Me Too as well is that um, we know that there are various reasons why people are lying or saying they don't believe her. So some people are in on the conspiracy plot, but other people like Charters and Caldecott who just want to get back for the cricket match, the, you know, the lawyer and his mistress who just don't want to be discovered. They have selfish reasons for not giving her their support. And I think that you saw that you've seen that in, in so many of these cases too, you know, with people like Harvey Weinstein and different um, kind of powerful men who've been brought down who repeatedly were harassing women, assaulting women. And there were people around them who knew but didn't do anything. And so often the reasons for their inaction were reasons of selfishness or self-preservation. What's going to happen to me? Will I lose my job? If I give support to this victimized person, what's what will be the consequences for me? Um, so I, I definitely think that that's really relevant. What about what about you, Nathan and Leah? You guys have any thoughts about that? Oh, I think that that observation is definitely valid. I, you know, the like you said, I mean, you know, the the core of the plot here uh, turns on the fact that you know it is possible not to believe Iris uh, until, as you all noted, I mean, she notes the the high heels, uh, and then you know that's sort of you know one one chip in the armor, uh, and then eventually it all comes tumbling down. But you're right. I mean, you know, the tension. Uh, builds to that discovery. I mean, there's a real possibility dramatically that no one is going to believe her. So, I mean, there's there's definitely a link there. Wouldn't you say, Leah? Absolutely. Um, I also think of just how she's able to recount what Miss Freud is wearing down to the exact detail of her blue handkerchief and still everybody's questioning whether she made it up or not and it just comes up again and again it doesn't matter what she finds what she sees her word is never enough um and it really comes down to finding not only solid proof but people who are willing to come alongside her um for her to actually be heard Thanks so much for that last question. I think that is, is really relevant and, and 
ties uh, ties a very old story, a very old film into into the current moment. Awesome. Well, we're going to move into our last segment right now, listeners, and that is uh, what we always do, which is passing on. We're all going to recommend something um, that we think you might enjoy or might want to check out. And uh, for that, we're going to start with Nathan. Well, what I want to pass on is an essay that I read a good number of years ago. As I said, growing up, I really never was much of a reader of murder mysteries. And we talked about how this really isn't one. But, uh, you know, since Katie wanted to talk Agatha Christie, it got me thinking of this essay. It's called McInerney Did It or Should a Pacifist Read Murder Mysteries? Uh, It's a Stanley Hauerwas essay in his collection called A Better Hope. Uh, And I strongly recommend it, pardon me. Uh, especially to our listeners who don't think of themselves as uh, readers, watchers, or lovers of murder mysteries. Uh, Stan Hauerwas, who is the last person I would think to make a case for the murder mystery, makes a pretty good one. Thanks. That sounds fascinating. Coyle, what would you like to recommend tonight? I would recommend, uh, and, and by recommend, I mean that it is sort of along the same lines of uh, of The Lady Vanishes. Uh, I don't recommend this in 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 some senses. Uh, the, the book Gone Girl, uh, I haven't seen the movie, uh, but it, it, the, the book at least deals with uh, several of the same themes, several of the same ideas. Uh, the primary difference is absolutely everyone in Gone Girl is just a terrible human being. Uh, so take take that with a grain of salt. Um, also, the uh, the book The Edge uh, by Dick Francis, uh, yet another murder mystery uh, set on a train. Uh, I think this time in Canada. Uh, again, very much in in that same vein as The Lady Vanishes. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll finish up our recommendations, but then I do want to come back and answer your last question. So sure. um, we'll make that the final question. Um, Leah, how about you? What do you want to recommend this week? I want to recommend another Margaret Lockwood film. Uh, it's a, one of her biggest. She was a very popular British actress in the 30s and 40s. Um, Night Train to Munich, uh, which was directed by Carol Reed and also starred Rex Harrison. It's a story about an inventor and his daughter who are kidnapped by the Gestapo after the Nazis march into Prague. And um, a British Secret Service agent follows them and uh, pretends, uh, pretends to be a German officer to woo the daughter over to the Nazi cause. And um, quite a few mischances occur. It's a wonderful classic. Uh, it is one of Margaret Lockwood's um, most popular films, and it's just a fun watch. Thanks. Um, I'm going to recommend also a train mystery film. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, Agatha Christie's novel Murder on the Orient Express, and um, listeners, you probably know that there's been a very recent adaptation with Kenneth Branagh in it, and I'm not going to recommend that. Um, I haven't seen it yet, mostly because I'm very upset about his mustaches. They're much too big. Um, and Poirot would never have mustaches like that. But um, what I want to recommend is uh, there was a long-running series, a uh, British series, called Agatha Christie's Poirot, uh, starring David Suchet, who was just phenomenal. And, and eventually, by the time it ended a few years ago, they actually did film every single story, um, Poirot story. And some of those um, take a lot of liberties with the text, but I want to recommend the Murder on the Orient Express episode of Agatha Christie's Pro that was from 2010, um, starring David Suchet. It's incredible. 
Um, among other things, it very interestingly amplifies, I'm not going to say foregrounds because to be honest, it's not very much present in the novels, but it amplifies the fact that in the books, Pora was always supposed to be Catholic. Um, but it's not talked about much in the novels. In this film adaptation, or this TV, I should say TV adaptation, that aspect of his character is amplified in this murder on the Orient Express so that there very much is, he very much has a struggle of conscience over what to do, having solved the mystery, what he should do with that knowledge. And I'm, I'm not gonna say any more than that because if you haven't ever read the story, then it would be a spoiler for you. But, um, so that's my recommend, recommendation. Um, I knew the story and watched this and was kind of done at the end, just emotionally done because it's just so incredible. And Suchet is a, a phenomenal actor. And so that's my recommendation for tonight. Uh, Agatha Christie's Poro, Murder on the Orient Express from 2010. Um, well, listeners, thank you so much for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. And um, thank you to Coyle and Nathan for joining us on the CFP for this episode. And we love to hear from you listeners. If you have topic reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to talk with us, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Leah Henning, Nathan Gilmore, and Coyle Neal, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks for part two of our discussion of vaccines and essential oils. That episode was a very long one, so it was split into two halves. So the second half is coming, um, is the next episode up. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.